Hey there, I'm Ambie Burfoot. I'm an old crazy runner and I've been one for a long time. everybody to another episode of Old Crazy Runners. I'm Nicholas, the oldest of the Old Crazy Runners, and I've got Fundy, mile 24 guy, craziest <laughs> of crazy runners. And today you're going to love it. We have Ambie Burfoot, definitely an old crazy runner, won Boston in 1968. You're going to want to stick around for this one. You are going to want to listen to everything that he has to say because this is just a brain dump of running experience. It's a fantastic conversation. And talking about experience, we have a whole lot of experience in that Strava Run Club. We do. And if you haven't already joined, it's the Old Crazy Runners podcast, Strava Run Club. It's a great community. Want to highlight somebody in particular, Jill Richardson, one of our first signups. She won her age group at the Rock and Roll San Jose Half Marathon over the weekend. Yes, she did. Fantastic shout out. Way to get out there and crush it. I love that. That that's what's awesome about uh, running is we have age groups. That's Me too. the best. Exactly. She won it. They gave her and a medal. That's... She's got a gold medal, just like uh, she should. Oh my god, a gold medal! I want to go congratulate her, buy her a beer, and uh, steal her medal. Um, well, I would just uh, I, might I would just snap a picture just... of it. You know, yeah, wear it for a little bit. Feel the gold. Feel good. Feel feel the heft. Pretty proud to have actually got my own medal over the weekend. Uh, we've been talking about it. There's been a lot of lead up. Um, and the Portland Marathon finally kicked off on Sunday, and it was spectacular. Man, uh, first of all, I was super jealous, obviously, as uh, you know. Uh, but what a perfect day for a marathon. Let's kind of explore that jealousy there, because I, I thought maybe you kicked your foot out a little too close to my running path when I was going around that corner. I it was, was all encouragement. There was so much encouragement and only 10% tripping. So just right. uh, deal with it. Yeah. I uh, wanted you to pick your feet up more. It was coaching. <laughs> Keep them up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It was, uh, it, it hit so many highs on so many levels. Um, there's, for me, there's a lot to talk about just because of, of everything that was out there. And I want to start, first of all, by highlighting one of our old crazy runner crew, Dennis Canfield. You asshole. <laughs> Dennis decided to run on a whim and beat everybody. Beat us all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And here's the thing. Did the exact opposite. Not just, <laughs> No training. Ran well, he did a 20 miler. The weekend before, which is the weekend totally before. not recommended, <laughs> decided having ran that that he felt he could, you know, he could bump another six miles on it. And and I mean, Dennis is in fantastic shape, and we ran with him at Hood yeah, Coast. He, he runs all the time. Also, I believe he bought new shoes for the marathon. Also, so he just it was like the triple down of stuff you oh, shouldn't I didn't do. Know that, of course, he did. You know, and yeah, he, he probably ran those. with a hydration pack that he's never ran before. I mean, all these things that you're not supposed all to do. All the things, probably new underwear, all <laughs> of it. <laughs> Uh, goes out there, sets a PR as you do on your first one. Um, and yet still, like you say, beat us all four Oh five was his finish time. Damn near broke the three or the four hour mark. Uh, acts absolute fantastic effort. Chris white also went out there and crushed it. Ran a four ten for his first marathon. Again, wanted to try and break that four hour mark, but damn, that's a hard line. 
Well, and I think I was talking to Chris. So he he was on pace to do his four hour, but he started cramping up. He started getting cramps. So, uh, you know, I told him to reach out to uh, Ken Outerkirk, who also had problems with cramping in the past, training, doing his triathlons. And also, uh, anybody out there, if you have any advice for not cramping up, I don't get cramps, so don't haven't had to worry about them. But if you had advice, head on, head on over to the oldcrazyrunners.com and uh, send us a message if you have any good advice for him. So that's interesting. Is cramping something that he has to be aware of and yes through. well he struggled with it even half marathons of getting uh cramps uh you know uh, you know it's probably lack of uh salts and and all of those minerals are, are causing him to cramp up but i don't know um but yeah he has struggled with cramps in the past because yeah, I, I say that just because you commented that, that you don't i don't for whatever reason i cramping has yeah. not been not been the problem that i ran into one of the problems uh, OBI. I What's that? OBI. OBI. Optimal beer intake. Uh, yes. <laughs> Lots of salts. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, I did, however, um, have to deal with who I've coined Stinky Man. Yeah. And this, I, I, I can't even begin to express to you this moment that I had. It's never happened to me before. I, we're going, you know, Portland, they ran through a whole bunch of merit of uh, neighborhoods, which is really great. All these people out inside cheering you on. Selwood was super fantastic. And uh, all of a sudden I'm thinking, I'm like, is someone barbecuing? I mean, it's like nine o'clock <laughs> in the morning. I mean, maybe tailgate. I mean, it seems, man, whatever they're doing to those onions, not working, not working. All of a sudden this guy comes up alongside me. Stinky man. Man. I, he, he he fortunately was faster than I was because he kept going, but it was it lingered. <laughs> I have never experienced somebody that had that so, intense of body odor on the course. Blew my. So mind. there were there were chemtrails behind. Oh, him. <laughs> Anybody that's worked in cubes knows what a drag bunt is, and that's exactly what he executed to perfection. One thing for me as I came into it. Uh, for one, we talked about how the elevation gain total is kind of low and everyone talks about it as a flat race. And I'm like, ah, yeah. there's up and downs. Through. Man, there were <laughs> there were a couple challenging hills there Yeah, that, uh, you know, certainly made you work for it. Um, and I really just ran my plan that I'd, I'd said. If I was, I was running to a zone and if I hit one of those hills and I started to get out of zone, I walked. And yeah. I, I, I kept that up. And I got to say it about mile 21, the 420 guy, who, by the way, I guarantee ran faster than the 420. There's no way he beat me as he did <laughs> when I ran a 420.07. Yeah. You know, but he passes me about mile 22. And that, I mean, I, at, at, at that point, I was mentally prepared to have the breakdown that I had in the last two and exact opposite. I knew at that point that I had it. I still had my core strength. I knew I could do the, I just needed to do like a right out of 10 minute mile for those last four miles to hit my mark and just stay right on his hip as best I could. And uh, felt great knowing that. So now I'm going into it with our next round because yeah, this, this isn't going to stop because I <laughs> do have that sub four on my target. I know yeah. I can get there. Well, a couple things. Uh, one, uh, I'm going to take full credit for that uh, bounce at the end at uh, yes. <laughs> mile 24 Made a big as a volunteer. Um, and 
I was rooting for all of you to break sub four, but I'm also a little happy that you didn't because I want to do it with you guys. Yeah, there's a, uh, <laughs> I've talked about schadenfreude before, the uh, taking yeah. pleasure in other people's pain. Uh, I think there's a cousin to that, which is what you experienced, which is you're not hoping that I don't win, but you're really glad you don't have to put up with the fact that I can't brag. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm going to call it Shoden relief. Shoden relief, fair enough. Fair <laughs> I'm enough. relieved That's a good call. that nobody broke four so we can do it together. Um, but I'd like to talk a little bit about the volunteering. So I obviously was super bummed that I couldn't run. Uh, I wish the hernia would have happened after my uh, 12 mile training run instead of after my 19 mile training run. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't have to put in all that extra work. Uh, you actually recommended volunteering and being out on the course and, and helping people. I was at the end, I was mile 11 for the half and mile uh, 24 for the full. So coming up on the end. So uh, man, I was out there just cheering people on. I couldn't really talk the next day. I had a gravelly voice yeah. and everything. And I ended up, I took our dog to the dog park and was wearing the Portland Marathon shirt. So some guy came and talked to me. And so I, I told him, well, I couldn't run, but I was, I was, did you run? Yeah. And it was like, I was like, oh, I was the mile 24 guy. I was like, you're a mile 24 guy. Yeah. That was awesome. That's right when I needed that little uplift. So uh, if you volunteer, be the guy. Or the gal that is cheering everybody on, doing stupid stuff, uh, just raising their spirits because uh, that's it makes you know, the course. Yeah, it makes um, it makes a big difference, and especially knowing where you are on the course as well. I mean, you know, at mile twenty four, uh, yeah. or at least from your experience, mile eleven, what those last uh, what that last push needs and getting yeah. out there. And with the uh, you know, just speaking to the volunteering, I I. Harken back to Pacer Tom again. He, he mentioned some of the challenges with the races that are just getting back into their motion is some of them having, you're not executing very well, uh, or, you know, aid stations aren't properly stocked. They're not as many as they need, that sort of thing. First of all, Portland Marathon, you ran a five-star marathon. It was yeah. fantastic. It was incredibly organized. There's no confusion whatsoever multiple aid stations, all of them operational, exactly as you said they would be. It was uh, so easy to run and uh, really, really well done. Also, the weather. Thank you, personally, whoever was in charge of that. You picked. <laughs> I'll take credit for that one. The perfect October Sunday to run a marathon. It was 50 degrees and just starting to have the sun break out at start and peaked at 61 by the time we finished i mean that is just the range and no wind perfect absolutely perfect that's awesome uh i am gonna throw one little negativity out there i like to be positive all the time uh but right next to me there was a large uh, multi-tent homeless encampment yeah you know i really feel like you know portland should have cleared those out because it's just not safe i mean you've got hundreds thousands of people running by um, I reported a, uh, a fire. Somebody sent a giant campfire on the course that oh. runners were complaining about because they're having to run through smoke and, and breathe that. And then I also reported, uh, to the police that I saw someone hand a gun, a pistol, uh, to someone in a tent. Uh, and, uh, that was about 9am and I was on the course till about one thirty, and not one single person came to check that out. Yeah. Well, let's so, for one uh, qualify that uh, that is a city of Portland complaint. Yes. 
versus a exactly. Portland Marathon. Oh, you know? yeah. Portland Marathon was great. Um, the city of Portland really needs to get their shit together because uh, there's, you know, there is a balance of, of helping out people who are homeless, uh, struggling with homeless issues. Um, but there's also the balance of public safety. And, and I don't feel like currently Portland, the city of Portland, is doing a good job with that balance. No, no, they're not, they're not striking that balance. <laughs> no, they're not. So obviously that was what uh, really wanted to focus on today. Uh, it was fresh in our minds. It was a beautiful run. I can't wait for you to get healed and get the next one on the calendar. I like the fact that uh, this is looking like it's going to happen fairly soon. And we can look at that uh, spring, early May, Eugene Marathon, potentially to get out there and have you do it. And then yeah, not and- crush our summer. Exactly. And next so, week we will uh, talk about how to come back and plan after an injury and, and re-ramp up because you did that this year. But today we're going to talk with someone who is the master of planning. Yes. Uh, Ambie Burfoot, 1968 Boston Marathon winner and editor for Runner's World magazine for decades. Yes. Decades. Yes. Also the uh, person who has been uh, given credit for any of the running schedules you are using, if you are doing any sort of training metrics uh, that is all based on his brain, he has run so many different runs. He's been involved with so many different runs. His experience level is through the roof. And we had the absolute fortunate opportunity to first get to know him over a cup of coffee uh, after Hood to Coast. And uh, he was kind enough to take that and, and join us today to talk with us about everything that he has to know, what he learned for the first time running the mother of all relays, and uh, more importantly, uh, beer. I believe we also talk about beer. So uh, with that, let's get on with Ambie Burfoot. Let's get to it. Ambie, wel- welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's great to join you guys. We had the most fortunate moment of all uh, on Hood to Coast when uh, your team, uh, which included the infamous Gene Dykes, uh, came by and spent some... T- and Jeannie Rice. And Jeannie Rice and, and a bunch of greats came by and spent the morning with us, and it was really great to get to know you, and so I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to talk with you more in depth here. Well, we were more impressed with you guys than you were with us because you seem to have a system of actually knowing what you were doing <laughs> on the course, whereas uh, we didn't. We had the best food of anybody in the race. We had two executive chefs who traveled with us from beginning to end, but we were a little bit clueless out on the course, <laughs> and, and it hurt us a couple of times, but then uh, that's what happens at Hood to Coast. That, that's exactly right. The experience of running the course really pays off. And, and you, you would know that individually with um, the races that you've run multiple times. And then you just multiply that with 12 legs and multiple people. And it just that's the part that we love the most. Well, yeah, that's the crazy part of the race. So um, if just doing it your first time, those logistics can definitely be a hindrance. Well, and since my team was composed of uh, only old crazy runners, yeah. every single one of us over 70, that had some kind of uh, multiplicative uh, effect on stuff that could potentially go wrong, <laughs> ranging from uh, injuries, of which there were a few, and I was one, I succumbed to that, and, uh, you know, just general uh, orneriness and uh, 
different opinions, uh, widely held, strongly held opinions on various things. Although in truth, we, we got along famously well. And that's the key. You got to love the van you're in and the people that you're with <laughs> and all that that brings. And that could be any number of new things each year. You're like, I've ran with this person seven times and this is the first time you really, what are you doing? So I'm, I'm kind of curious to some of the conflicts that you guys had and the differences of opinions, because that is an opinionated bunch in that group. Well, you know, the main thing was I was si sitting in the second or third uh, uh, seat back and we had two guys up front, a, a driver and a navigator. But there were a few times uh, when they could not agree on where we were and how we should get to point uh, from point A to point B. And one of the guys who was supposed to be just the driver was playing with his cell phone GPS at the same time as he was driving. And I had to kind of close my eyes and squeeze my knees at those points because I don't like crazy driving in urban settings in, in downtown Portland. But um, somehow we got there. And most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time we got there ahead of the next runner. So uh, the, the, the handoffs worked in general. So we started implementing uh, something with, uh, it wasn't the Hood to Coast, but the Windy River, which is one of their other relays, uh, because oftentimes that you guys found out you're out of cell phone service range. So for the relays and checkpoints, I started downloading the Google Maps to my phone so I could use them offline. And then I also pre-programmed all of the GPS coordinates for the stops so at any point, I could just pull up my phone and, and hit one of those stops, and then I would get GPS guidance to that location. Fundy, while you were doing that, we were trying to decide what kind of wine we wanted with dinner. So there were some different emphases <laughs> on, on, on the two teams. Uh, we, had, but, we had pre planned beer and food. Yeah, yeah already, beer. So. <laughs> so we had peanut butter. <laughs> I, I am curious about these executive chefs. Were they runners who happened to be chefs or did you just like, no, no, this is what we got to bring? They, they were for real. They were not runners. They were uh, employees and friends of one of our uh, team, meet, uh, team leaders, actually. And he brought them up from uh, Northern California. He brought them up from uh, San Francisco area in one of the vans. And they cooked for two days before the race for us and then the day after in Seaside. So really, we had tremendous food and tremendous alcohol and uh, halfway decent running. We were. Let's let's be clear and let's make the historical note. We we are the first team ever in the history of Put to Coast to finish with every member being over age seventy. We didn't average our ages. We didn't have a few guys who were sixty six right. and one who was seventy eight. We were all over seventy. So uh, we were totally legit and uh, we did it the right way. Well, and let's let's add to that because I'm curious of the 12, how many were first timers like yourself? There were a couple of first timers and, 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 you know, I was not actually a first timer. I did it once for Runner's World about 20 years ago, oh. but our first timers for the most part were the uh, world championship athletes, Gene Dykes, Jeannie Rice and Nolan Shahid. So uh, they had never done it before. And Nolan, of course, is, you know, like a 1500 meter runner. For, so for him to be doing a bunch of six mile road legs uh, was different. Of course, he's a tremendous athlete and tremendously fit. And so he, he was stellar in his road legs. But it was uh, certainly a new experience for him and, and 
three others on our team, two others, I think. So one thing that Gene talked about that was really hard was those uh, running for six miles and then stopping for that extended period of time and then running. So your body's cooling down and trying to get warmed up. Did you or any of the of the other runners find that to be one of the main challenges? I, I had an injury going into the event and it was a mild muscle strain and I was totally convinced that it was going to be gone in a couple of days or I wouldn't have bothered flying <laughs> out to Oregon from the East Coast. Uh, but the damn thing held on and it really came unraveled in uh, my first two legs. So I did not complete the third leg. We had to do a, follow the substitution rules there. Gene, I think, is still trying yeah. to figure out what exactly went wrong for him in those races. He has definitely said that running uh, six miles three different times, which is like 18 miles total, it's nothing for him. He does 200-mile races every weekend, right? Yeah. And yet he, he says that those three six-mile legs, uh, discontinuous, were much harder than running continuously. And, and he's, uh, he's retained a uh, strained muscle that he got out there on the roads, and he's not sure he's going to be able to run the London Marathon in two weeks. So um, here's hoping he'll have a fast recovery. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, we talk about it as far as the difficulty of hood to coast. It really is in the vans themselves. It's, it's not the legs that are necessarily challenging. It's that cramped quarters and uh, putting your body in a position for an extended length of time when it really needs to be stretching and recovering. And you don't feel it till that third leg. And, you know, we'll tell new runners all the time, you're going to be excited. You're going to get out there. I mean, it's, it's like any other race, right? You're going to blow that doors off coming right out of the gate, and then you're going to pay for it later. I, I think you hit it. That's exactly what it is. It feels pretty good going out, but um, too much van time is, is not a normal state for most of us uh, antsy runner types mm -hmm. who like to be moving around and stretching and dropping on the floor and doing push-ups or whatever it is we do all day long. And uh it really, it really gets you down after a bit. So we talked a little bit about speaking of injuries. So I, unbeknownst to myself, uh, ran hood to coast with a hernia, Ooh. and then uh, was in quite a bit of pain later that afternoon after we had uh, coffee in the morning. Um, I thought mm -hmm. I had just pulled something, and we had a nurse in our van, and she said, nope. "No, you're stupid. <laughs> you have a hernia. <laughs> you got a hernia." Uh, so I am currently out of uh, extended runs, uh, which sucks. I won't be able to do my marathon that I had planned. Mm. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, well, you know, it, uh, old when you're an old crazy runner, stuff just falls apart. Sometimes you got to get it fixed. It, it does, and I'm on the lucky side of that continuum. I'm maybe old and crazy, but my hood to coast injury seems to have cleared up about. 99.5% and I'm not going to set any records uh, by a long shot in the Boston Marathon, but I hope to go the distance on October 11th. Oh, that's right. You have uh, that coming up. That's keep thinking. It, I, I forgot it's the in the fall and it's the weekend after the Portland. I keep thinking it's another six months from now. <laughs> you're like you're not me. Clear, you're clearly not an East Coaster no. where everybody out here is completely obsessed by the Boston Marathon. People are already trying to suss out the weather two weeks in advance, and uh, we're all sort of curious how an October race is going to be 
different from an April race that some of us have run 30 or 40 times. And, you know, like, will there be leaves on the trees now? Usually in April, they aren't. So the sun is really, can be really hot in April. Oh, right. But uh, I'm, you know, to me, it's like a once in my lifetime chance to run the Boston Marathon. Same course, same everything, except totally different time of year. And it just seems like a fun one offer. Yeah. No, that, that's a great perspective that it's not just, you know, the course itself, but little things like, uh, you know, the leaves haven't fallen off the tree. What sort of canopy do you get? What sort of shade does that bring into the whole thing? I hadn't even thought about it from that point. Yeah, it feels a little bit like the 2014 Boston, which was the one that came after the bombing in 2013. And so... We had tragedy followed by 2014, which was the, this tremendous celebration in the Boston Marathon. This year, after two years of COVID and canceled races and virtual races, people are really excited to get together and head to Hopkinton. Uh, it's going to be quite different. Uh, instead of starting waves, the waves are going to be the t- when you board the bus in Boston an hour outside of uh, Hopkinton. And as soon as you get to Hopkinton, you're kind of on your own. You can drift down to the start and take off. And no one really knows what that's going to be like. So it will be a whole new experience. And I think it'll be great fun for everyone. So there's not really going to be a starting gun. You just kind of drift down there and start whenever you want. and, And it ticks across when you cross that start line. That's my understanding. Of course, for the elite athletes, for the men and women, the championship race, there'll be very much of a, of a start and a TV event and then a fierce competition for the next two hours. But for the rest of us, uh, instead of standing in your wave forever, mm-hmm. which is not a great COVID strategy, uh, we're going to be asked to wear our masks on the bus. And as soon as we get to Hopkinton, Instead of having to wait in the village for two hours for this for our wave, we can kind of use the Porta Johns quickly and walk down to the start and drift across and take off. So um, that'll be a different experience and fun, and I think might allow some people with relatively similar qualifying times to run together. I'm I'm really not sure how it's going to work. That could be a really interesting change, actually. The idea of just taking the structure away and letting it kind of just organically start, you know, obviously besides the, as you mentioned, the ones that are really, really pushing for wins, but for the remainder and the bulk of the people, the idea of just letting them out and, and, you know, as you make your way, uh, I'd be curious to see how that might disperse the field over the course of the race. Well, I think that's what everyone is curious about. Uh, and of course, the, the buses for the faster runners are still leaving before the buses for the slower runners. So whatever the density is at the start, it should expand as we go along the course. And, and that's good for social distancing, etc. cetera. Uh, and 20,000 runners or 24, whatever number they're going to mm-hmm. have, that's not a small number. No. I don't think anyone has to worry about running down the road and wondering where the heck everybody else is. <laughs> yeah. There are going to be plenty of runners out there going faster and slower than that, us, as always. And uh, so uh, I think it's going to be a good time to just enjoy the Boston Marathon that's the same as it has always been with its wonderful traditions and historic course and uh, hopefully cheering Wellesley co-eds and 
maybe they'll flatten Heartbreak Hill this year, but I doubt it. <laughs> I imagine it'll be as big a beast as ever. Uh, it'll just be a different way of experiencing the whole thing. So how are you approaching uh, the race? Is this just, you know, you're out there enjoying it? Do you have um, time perspectives, goals? Uh, what, what's, what's this going to mean for you? Uh, I sort of hate to admit it, but I'm approaching the race severely undertrained. Uh, which is okay. My theory about running at my age now is that the most important thing is to be healthy and strong on race day. And sometimes to be healthy and strong, you have to undertrain a little bit to make sure you don't get injured or ill. So I'm following the uh, unique undertraining theory (laughs) (laughs) to get ready for the Boston Marathon. Very much the opposite of what I did 50, 60 years ago. Uh, I did do uh, 19 miles last weekend, and I'm still patting myself on the back for that, even though it was absurdly slow. And uh, I will get in another couple of uh, 15s the next two weekends. But uh, I'm, as I said, I'm not going for any records at this point other than longevity. I, I would like to be able to run Boston as long as possible. Uh, In addition to the October reason for running, my secondary reason for running this year is that I haven't run a Boston Marathon in the decade 2020s. Mm. And I have run one in every decade previously, starting with the 1960s. So I'm at least going to keep the decade streak alive. And then it's a long time to the 2030s. I'm just going to be clawing to hold on that long. Ambi, as a writer, I think that um, uh, Marathon Under Training is a perfect title for a smash hit for a book because everybody wants to run the marathon, but they don't want to put in all the training. So I think that's your key to financial success right there. Well, I, I'm, I will take, a, take that under advisement. Uh, <laughs> I think it's an interesting approach. Uh, I, I remember, God, in the, probably the late 1970s or the early 1980s, I wrote an article for Runner's World saying that you could train for a marathon in eight weeks if you had, you know, were a little bit fit to begin with. And I must admit, I received thunderbolts from <laughs> from above and below in all sorts of netherworlds for even daring to mention anything as obscene as an eight-week marathon program. In those days, you know, if you didn't train for six months, you just weren't agonizing over it enough and <laughs> i uh, like anyone i uh, i know what it takes to run a fast marathon and it takes a lot of long hard effort for years and years but i also think it's okay to run the marathon for fitness and recreation and enjoyment and without doing a six-month training program and, and uh you know i've run every month for the last 55 years so i've got a little bit of a base behind me and Even if I'm not killing myself to get ready for Boston, I'm building up a little bit, and I hope I'll be smart enough to run uh, 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 a decent race on race day. Well, and I'd love to go take a little history back and, you know, talk about the year that you won the Boston Marathon, and then also, you know, how many times had you run before that, and then how the race has changed over the years and how your perspective of the race has changed over the years. 
if that's one question, it might take me the next 60 minutes to uh, answer it. So Perfect. <laughs> perhaps we can break it down uh, yeah. a little bit. And I'll start with my early days. And uh, we'll try and break this up a little bit so I don't drone on forever. But the real, the real story of my life and the important story is that I was a failed basketball player in high school. Last kid on the team, I decided to give up basketball and try a different sport. I walked onto the cross-country team, and the coach of my cross-country team was the best distance runner in the United States for 10 years, a Boston Marathon winner, a two-time Olympic marathoner named John J. Kelly. Not to be confused with John A. Kelly, who was the elder who ran the race 58 times, I think. But John J. Kelly was both the best runner in the country and the most uh, intelligent and an inspirational human being I've ever met in my life. In the 1950s and 60s, when nobody on the planet had heard of org organic gardening, he was doing it uh, in an America that then worshipped only bigger, stronger, faster, more exploitative he was living a modest, sustainable life and riding his bicycle to work instead of polluting the environment with a car driving to work. He was a literature student. Uh, he was a supporter of all the arts. He was as beloved by the local poets and folk singers as he was by the long-distance runners. And I, uh, I was a, a, a shy, intense, perhaps scholarly kid who just kind of sat at his feet and absorbed his wisdom and tried to become him. And uh, ever since then, uh, I'm a much lesser version of John J. Kelly, but those things which he espoused are the ones which I have always tried to espouse and, and follow in my life. Uh, I ran my first Boston when I was a freshman in college. I skipped track practice without telling the coach. Went up to Boston, ran 235, didn't know what I was doing, but I was fit. I was young. I was Kelly-inspired. Uh, I didn't even know there was a heartbreak hill on the, on the course that day. I just soared right over it. And then uh, 65, 66, 68, <laughs> is that three or four years later? Uh, anyway, uh, by that time, I was running 120 miles a week. I was completely obsessed by the idea of trying to win the Boston Marathon, like my idol, John J. Kelly. And I just happened to be very lucky to have one of those days when everything came together for me on the day of the Boston Marathon. And uh, I was lucky enough to be the guy who, who broke the tape that day. So, I mean, how fortuitous was it that that was your high school cross-country coach? That was incredibly fortuitous. It was the most random thing you could possibly imagine. That the odds were one in a billion, or or, or whatever they are, um, but they they made all the difference in the world. And every one of us who has ever had an important mentor in his or her life realizes that the role of that mentor is just uh, unbelievably big. And uh, for me, it just you know it changed my life. And uh, I. You know, I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't been a successful runner and a, uh, that opened the doors to an editorial and a writing job and getting to meet everybody who I got to meet through Runner's World. I mean, how 
fortunate can you be to grow up in a running era that extends all the way from Roberta Gibb and Catherine Switzer, the first women in the 1960s, all the way through Bill Rogers, Frank Shorter, Joan Benoit, Dina Castor, Meb Kaplesky, Ryan Hall. Who am I leaving out? I mean, there are so many great runners, and I've gotten to know all of them and to see all of them up close and go to the Olympics and watch Usain Bolt do astonishing things uh, every four years. And, it, uh, you know, I've had a very, very privileged life, one I could never have imagined when I was young. If Runner's World had told me that they had a job for me in 1978, I think it was when I started, uh, if they had a job for me, but they didn't have a salary, I would have said, fine, that's okay. You don't need <laughs> yeah. to pay me to do that. Uh, but fortunately enough for me, they had a salary uh, plus a dream job. And I, I worked with amazing people and I met amazing people every, every week and every year of, of my running career. So Fundy prefaced uh, his question around how uh, the coaching has changed, and and I had that same note because I, I I had seen that your your coach was you know quite an accomplished athlete in in his own right, and definitely want to explore, you know what you saw then, how things have changed, how they've stayed the same. I think I think that's a great point, but I want to get to something else first because you mentioned the influence that Runner's World has had on your life as a whole, and. That was another question that I wanted to get to, which was, what was what was the event that you were um, a not a participant for necessarily, but you were there? What was one of the most impactful sport or running events that that you got to witness because of your proximity with every everybody in this world? Yeah, that's that's a, that's a great question, and, and there were many. And I'll think of something a, a moment after giving the answer. But an obvious answer is sitting in the Olympic Stadium in 1984 when Joan Benoit comes in and wins the first women's Olympic marathon. And goodness knows, even as a running journalist, I always attempted to be unbiased and objective. But, you know, we were all sitting there crying. What else could you do to have this incredible athlete from Maine who I had followed for a number of years in fact, I wrote an article about her about seven months before the Olympics. I went up to visit her in Maine. And every other athlete in the world who was training for the Olympics in the winter of 1984, January, February, is in uh, New Zealand or Australia or Phoenix or nobody was in Flagstaff then. But they've gone to some place that's warm, dry and high. And Joni is sitting in a house that she has just bought in Maine, which is mostly falling down. Before we go out on the run, we're having a conversation, and I'm like looking the other way because she's sitting in a bathroom that's got two walls and is about five feet away from me and is doing her bathroom thing before we run. And it's just, uh, it's another world. It's Maine, and the, the roads are snow-covered and icy and treacherous and dark and cold and windy. And that's her environment, and that's what made her strong. And somehow she was smart enough to know that she was better off sticking to the environment that made her strong where she was comfortable rather than going to some artificial place where theoretically it would be ideal to train, but in reality, maybe not. 
And, you know, that's something that hasn't changed. There are so many more opportunities to move yourself around the world now and go to places, uh, Kenya and Ethiopia and beyond to, to train. But, you know, we don't really know that any of those places are better than uh, Bar Harbor, Maine, or, or Portland, Oregon, or Mystic, Connecticut, where I live. Uh, every athlete's got to figure that out somehow for himself or herself. So uh, I'd like to go back to 1984 and get your perspective on that first time uh, that there was a women's marathon at the Olympics. And the, the question I really have is that when I think back to 1984, that seems like it is so late for there to be a women's marathon in the Olympics. And going back to running at that time, is that what it felt like that, that should have been happening the previous decade and, and Olympics was behind the curve or uh, was that kind of the right time for that to happen in the evolution of women being able to run the marathon? Well, you're absolutely correct. Of course, it was much later than it should have been. And all of us who knew anything about women runners knew, you know, a decade or more before then that there should have been more opportunities, even Olympic opportunities for women. Uh, but looking back now, it's hard for people who didn't live in that era to understand uh, the obstacles. And the obstacles were significant. And sure, it was old white men sitting on all the important committees, whether it was here in the U.S. at the Boston Marathon, which didn't allow women for too long, or at the Olympic Committee, which is worldwide, uh, but with the same obstacles. So it, it took a lot of, of hard work, took a lot of political effort. It took people like uh, Jacqueline Hansen and Catherine Switzer and many, many others to, to lobby and, and to go to meetings and, and to bang their heads against the wall in frustration at how long and slow things were how long and slow it took but uh boy the rewards were sensational mm -hmm. and, and that race was you know any woman who won it would have been fantastic but to have joan win it in los angeles being from maine and representing the u.s uh it, it was very very special so um it took too long but once the women got there they proved uh, the the rightfulness of the decision of course, that's been amplified many, many times since then. Even when Joan uh, won in 1984, women represented, I don't know, let's say 10% of the running population. And today, as we all know, depending on how you count it, it's 40 or 50 or 60% mm -hmm. of the running population for women. So we've gotten to the point where they can win the Olympics, which is important, but more important uh, more importantly, uh, they've gotten to the position where societally it's recognized that, that running is a great sport for, for women. They're not only tremendously talented physically, but uh, mentally, psychologically, emotionally uh, for running. It's great for their families. And uh, it's, it's a world turned upside down from when I started in the 1960s, but it's right side up in terms of it being the correct position. 
Nicholas and I talk about a lot about uh, with ultra running where uh, there are multiple times when a woman outright wins some of these ultra marathons and we're getting to those longer distances where uh, the parity between men and women become really interesting. It is fascinating. I agree with you. I wrote something short about that uh, just in the last week. Uh, I don't know where it's going. I don't know if it's a real phenomenon or or if it's anecdotal at this point, but it's very, very real in terms of the results that we see in races week in and week out. And so uh, that will be one definitely to, to follow and see see where it goes. Well, I uh, remember our conversation with Lazarus Lake. Do you know Lazarus? Uh, yes. My name. Uh, we asked him a similar question, and his response was, uh, there's going to have to continue to be uh, men's and women's divisions uh, so that men can actually win something in the future. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a very good response. Uh, he, uh, I don't know if he's right or not, but Laz is pretty good at his, uh, his responses, and, and his, his events have certainly captured world interest and and that's a real talent that he has for putting those things on and having them mimicked around the world and Mm -hmm. other countries and cities so uh it's very very exciting to watch that one unfold uh, right in front of our eyes and if it does turn out uh that women start winning even more of the ultra races and uh show that they have a superior superiority whether it's physical or mental in the long distance uh, events that will be a very good turning of the tables well i'm going to enjoy that just because i have an excuse that that's the reason i didn't win the races <laughs> they, did, right, they didn't have the because uh, i need one over 50 male <laughs> with a hernia category you could win exactly i'd like to go back and um very few people that in the world has have been as close to running as you for so long. And I'd love to uh, have you talk a little bit more how the sport has changed over the decades um, outside of just uh, the differences in genders and women coming more on sports and maybe even use the Boston Marathon as the lens to talk about how running has changed over the years. Sure. Uh, That's a really good question. When I get answered a lot and and we have been talking about it already in terms of the major significant changes in the sport in the last 50 years clearly it's number one women number two women number three women number four women (laughs) you know that that's where it's at Uh, the second big change is uh, crazy old guys crazy old women crazy old crazy old crazy old yeah because when I started running the Boston Marathon, there was one crazy old guy in the race, John A. Kelly. And when I ran my first Boston, you know, I don't know what he would have been then, maybe 55 or something. And we all thought he was a really crazy old guy to be still running marathons when you're 55. Come on, this is a young guy's sport. And, and look at how that's changed mm-hmm. and, and look at how much it's uh, changed people's lives by, by giving us reasons to, to stay fit and to challenge ourselves with goals and to be motivated to do things that just as we didn't know that women could run fast marathons 50 years ago, nobody imagined that people could run marathons as fast as Gene Dykes and Jeannie Rice and Ed Whitlock and, and people like that. And, and those guys and women 
of course, really continue to push back the barriers on what I call lifelong running or lifelong fitness. And, and I think all of us philosophically are uh, big proponents of lifelong running and lifelong fitness. As someone who's been down the road, I can tell you, it don't get easier. It only gets <laughs> it only gets tougher, and yet the rewards uh, are perhaps bigger and bigger every year if you can stay fit and healthy and engaged in the game. You know, you bring up a point about the increase in population of older runners, and we've had some guests that have talked about. Uh, you know, they might have been really, really engaged in running, uh, similar to you were uh, in their you know, high school and college years and either took a break or, you know, for some reason didn't run and had an extended period where they didn't put in a lot of miles and then came back to it and had this rejuvenation. And alongside that, those that have really pushed really hard through their twenties and thirties and it caught up to them a little bit in the end. So I'm kind of curious from your perspective, because you have been running a long time. How, how do you view the, the, the best way for the average person to be engaged as a healthy runner for decades? What, what, what is the, kind of the secret sauce there? I never claim that I know what the secret sauce is. Uh, I think adaptation is always at the, the, the center of the, of the game. I absolutely believe that at whatever time a person wants to challenge herself or himself, whether it's 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, to go for it and to try to win the Boston Marathon age group or to try and run the Comrades Marathon or a 100-mile trail race and at high altitude or whatever your challenge is, Ironman triathlon, go for it. There aren't many who can stay at that high level for a lot of years. And the really important thing is that when you come down off the mountain peak and you're no longer challenging yourself to, to win Boston or the Olympics or Ironman, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? And, and you know, if we want to simplify things, there are two, two possibilities. You can uh, get in your, get on your sofa and do nothing for the next 40 years, in which case you'll become obese and out of shape and have a heart attack and have a miserable life. Or you can keep uh, jamming down the road at whatever level, effort, pace, enjoyability works for you. And you can't stay at the top of the mountain. You can't keep winning for 20, 30, 40 years. At least not many of us can. But you can continue to reap all the benefits and the Benefits are physical and they're equally and perhaps even more uh, mental and, and, and brain function. I mean, I was at Runner's World. Oh, now it was 25 years ago when Hal Higdon sent me an email and said, I want to write uh, an article about how running makes you smarter. And, you know, I fell on the floor and pissed my pants. That was the funniest <laughs> damn thing I'd ever heard in my life. Because, you know, we all knew running was about the heart and maybe the legs, and it wasn't about anything else. And now, of course, 25 years later, all the interesting research is about exercise and the brain and uh, old age dementia and Alzheimer's and some of the terrible diseases of aging are all around us and none of us want to have those or to have members of our family fall in, 
fall that way. And so I don't know if running or exercise actually reduces Alzheimer's risk, but uh, it's, it's certainly one more good reason to be out there. Uh, and the real everyday reward is that you feel better mm-hmm. every day that you're doing something. And, you know, I used to run 20 miles uh, a day and now I run 20 miles a week and a few other things. And, and that, that does it for me pretty well. I, I'm sweating a little. I'll, I'll run some heat, hill repeats if I want to do something hard. I lift weights at the gym, although I never gain an ounce of muscle. I'm still the <laughs> world's skinniest, weakest person. But um, it, it actually feels good. I've actually gotten to like weightlifting mm-hmm. a little bit. And I and I just I like how I feel physically and mentally when I'm doing something. And if I sit for too long, I don't like how I feel. And you know maybe that's some genetic thing in my head, uh, my body that uh, makes me move. And other people don't have that same impulse. But I think um, I think there are rewards to exercise that people can't possibly imagine until they do it. And people do imagine or they hope for weight loss or or something else, but they don't imagine how much better they're going to feel when they get in shape. Mm -hmm. They imagine that exercising makes you tired and fatigued and stressed out. and Life is already fatiguing and stressing enough, so why bother with exercise? They don't understand that that's the paradox, that exercise gives you more energy, not less. So two questions. One, have you apologized to Hal for laughing at his email? <laughs> yeah, Hal and I have been friends forever. Hal had his 90th birthday a couple of months ago, so he's he's uh, one of my long, long-time friends. Nice, and I assume uh, still super quick upstairs. He's very quick upstairs. Yeah, so I'll, I'll take right it when I get one. to 90. <laughs> and then uh, second question I have, is Nicholas and I were talking uh, before about this, but you know, we've there was that HBO documentary with Michael Phelps uh, talking about mental health struggles, and and I know that uh, we've seen a lot of this with other professional athletes that once they're past their prime or they have accomplished their goals of winning the medals and X Y Z, and then they go into quote unquote retirement, that mental health struggle that people have with that with and I believe it's just with their identity as a person they no longer feel whole but with running it seems like there is a bit of uh we get to escape that because running you can just keep going and now that we have all of these age group records uh with different things and you know you can enter a local half marathon and you know hopefully place in your age group and if you don't, you can find a smaller half marathon in a smaller <laughs> town somewhere farther away. Um, and I'd love to hear a little bit your thoughts on that and all of the mental health benefits that, that running gives us. <laughs> Fundy, you really specialize in those big topics that, that <laughs> go, on, go, go on for miles. Uh, my first observation is you, you were talking about Michael Phelps and retired athletes. I, I feel as if we've just lived through a period where we've seen a whole lot of the stress mental health issues in active athletes, active championship athletes, yeah. active Olympic gold medalist athletes, and more. So uh, one thing that's clearly happening is that people are feeling more freedom to talk about the fact that uh, 
running and other exercise, it's not all endorphins and runners high and woo woo, don't I feel great today. <laughs> uh, there are real, real pressures. And uh, I, I was never, of course, at the heights of some of the people who have been in the headlines this year for their, their mental health issues. But I, I re- have said many, many times to runners over the years, uh, you have no idea how lucky you are to be a mid-pack runner uh, <laughs> and to be happy with your expectations, where whatever they are. Because when I was a, an elite runner and I went to the Boston Marathon every year, um, my race was a failure unless I won it. Right. And I only won it once, so that meant I had 10 failures the other 10 years. And and. Dealing with those expectations and the failures and the, and the impossibility of winning all the time, which is an impossibility, is a real, real stress. And, and athletes have to figure out how to deal with it. And uh, it can be very, very tough uh, for many. Um, runners, you said runners can move up to the next age group. Yeah, that's true. I, I must say, I think um, what is what is... I think can be difficult, and now I'm talking very personally, is the objectivity of of running. You know, it's a time sport. It's not golf where every Mm -hmm. golf course has got different length and sand traps, blah, blah, blah. And so 61 on one course is is not better than 73 on another course. Running every 10K, it may have a few hills, but it's highly objective and when you run for 50 years, the only thing that happens to to the watch or, or the wa- the band or whatever you're using is that it tells you you're getting slower year by year. You never, you only re- rarely get faster. So I think we have to dig really deep into the subject of uh, of personal motiv- motivation and what keeps us going. Uh, the stopwatch isn't going to keep you going. If you like trophies, maybe you'll win a new age group every five years, and and that's fine. And I'm all for vanity and success and collecting trophies. If that if that's somebody's thing, it's it's not really mine. Uh, my thing is to keep running for the personal, for the fact that I feel good when I'm running, and, and for the satisfaction I get that I can still go out there and cover the distance and. At some point, you really get to the old joke that uh, I'll be happy if I finish the Boston Marathon on Monday, because <laughs> some of us are going to take <laughs> not a full day, but it's going to feel like a full day out there to cover the course in at Boston. So I, t- I tell everyone for sure the, the most important uh, muscle in your body is, is the mental muscle or whatever's up there between your ears. And that's the one that we all have to work on and to make sure that we're we're paying attention to it and keeping it primed and keeping it keeping it on the right side of the ledger so that we're staying out there. I think in, in that perspective, I'd like to bring back one of our favorites, which is uh, Mike Arrett. And he made a comment once that was, uh, the older I get, the faster I was. <laughs> the, the older I get, the fast, the slower I am, yeah. and uh, I can't even. You know, I don't even. The, the times that I once ran just don't make any sense to me now. It, yeah. it was some other, yeah, guy. And you know, I live, I live 
a couple of miles from where I grew up and I'm still running the same courses that I was running when I was 20 years old and pretty damn fast and now they take twice as long to go around so uh, you know I just have to find other ways to enjoy them uh, beyond looking at my watch and saying way to go you ran another five minute mile that doesn't happen anymore well I, I would like to give uh, there's one benefit for uh, running slower as we get older, our race entry fees, we get uh, more dollar per minute yes. than we did in the past, right? Yeah. So since the, it's like in golf, the more strokes you hit, uh, the better value for playing that course. Yeah, and I can plug the, the work that you guys do. I never, ever listened to music when I ran. I just was not a music guy. But I've started listening to podcasts when I run in the last couple of years because there's a lot of them out there. They're very entertaining. Uh, they're about running and every other known topic. And uh, I find that they do help the time go out, go by a little bit more, especially if I'm trying to run for, you know, a long time, like 60 minutes or 90 or 120 minutes. Well, I hope that uh, we're certainly going to make that list of your uh, your favorite podcast going forward because, you know, we'll banter on for hours and hours, as you can tell with the questions Fundy likes to throw out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys are already uh, on the list because the crazy old runners definitely have to stick together. Also, you know, we have something to learn from each other. What You know, I, I, I think Elliot Kipchoge is just unbelievable. But I, it's kind of hard to relate to a 159 marathon yeah. for me. I, I'm happy with a 159 half. I'm very happy with yeah. it. So um, we we learn from each other. We're inspired by each other. And uh, it's good to know that we're among friends and there are other people like us out there. Uh, I'm kind of glad you brought that up. I was curious to see, um, similar to the, the four-minute mile, do you think the two-hour marathon is that you know a legitimately verified certified finish do you think that's uh, on the horizon for somebody so you mean a sub two-hour marathon uh, in in a legal competition right. as opposed to kipchoge's and, and i don't detract from kipchoge's races at all sure they were special and they were exhibitions and all of that but most of us believe that if you covered 26.2 miles on your own feet, you know, you kind of satisfied the, the requirements. I think uh, in, in a real straight marathon, who knows? It could be tomorrow. It could be a, a few more years now. It seems that the, the dam is a little bit broken, but the financial and other considerations have to be just right in, in a legitimate marathon because if, it, if the prize money is all for winning the race, then why run fast? Uh, if there's a big bonus for sub two, then there might be reason to run fast. Uh, and uh, it, it, is, it is tougher in a real race than it is in those exhibitions. I think we'll get there. I don't know who it'll be. I think someone beside Elliot will come across through in a few years and, and run even faster who knows what the next iteration of shoes will produce and mm -hmm. how much faster they can get i spent uh you know 49 years of my 50 years in running believing that it was uh physically impossible for a running shoe to be faster than another running shoe mm -hmm. 
because the least shoe was the fastest and you couldn't be any lighter than a two ounce shoe or <laughs> something like that. And all of a sudden these new materials and configurations were on the scene and there's no question they make a difference. I don't know how much difference, but there's a whole lot of people running faster now. And it's not from human evolution, it's from shoe evolution. Well, and I think uh, it's worth giving you a little props as well. Uh, the training evolution has come a long way to bringing these times down and increasing the number of people that can hit those aggressive times. Yeah, I'm not sure about that one. I'm not sure that training has changed a great deal in the last 50 years. I mean, everybody has always known that to run well in the marathon, you had to run a lot of miles and you had to run a few of them really fast. What more is there to it than, than that? That's that's what we were doing in the 60s. There are many more rewards now, and reward helps you run faster. There's a much bigger world of runners out there. When you start getting to East Africa and other parts of the world, you've got runners who didn't exist in the 1960s, at least not in, in the marathon. And uh, yeah, the you know shoes make a difference, and if you got pacers, that makes a difference. Uh, all the gizmos in the world that people wear on their shoes and on their head and on their wrists and on their arms these days, I'm not quite convinced that those make a difference yet. But uh, who knows? Maybe they do. So Nicholas and I both had the. Uh, we were lucky enough to have the opportunity to take the uh, RRCA coaching course oh, uh, to kind of learn a little bit more about um, physiology of, of running and, and, and training. And one of the things that Nicholas and I both liked was the, the pacing chart, which you created for them. And uh, one of the things that I think uh, the word has gotten out a lot more recently, uh, some people refer to it as the zone two training, but the, the easy conversation pace and having the majority of your miles uh, when you're training for, for long distance being those slow miles versus trying to do everything at pace. And I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts on that and how that's evolved over the years um, and kind of the, your, your philosophy around that. Sure. Uh, let me see how I can summarize this. First of all, when I, when I was running, we did LSD training, long, slow distance. I don't even know if you're familiar with that, but that's what we called it. And, and you know, today training is supposed to be 80-20. I bet I was doing 95-5 because I was, I was mileage and distance oriented. And the only way to rack up a lot of big miles was to keep most of them fairly relaxed. The thing that's most interesting about the uh, pacing charts and I think virtually all uh, credit for pacing charts has to revert to Dr. Jack Daniels and uh, his oxygen power tables and other work that he did. He explained those pacing tables to me in the mid-1985, in mid-1980s, 85 or so. Um, not in the, in the sense of charts, but in the sense of relationship of pacing efforts to athletes of different abilities. I had a brother-in-law who was a math genius and I took the information to him and I said, can you take this information and turn it into charts? And he said, yeah. <laughs> and, and we published a chart in Runner's World. It must have been in 1985 or so that was 
very, very close to, to what's done these days by RRCA and Jack and others. Everybody's got their charts now. And, and what's interesting in the story is that I took Jack's information, and there was also a physiologist in Montreal I met doing the same thing, and we turned them into charts. And Jack didn't actually publish his first book with charts until almost 10 years later. So it was always in his head. Uh, I, I give Jack uh, the title of world's best running coach. He's an absolute genius of understanding the physiology of running and the psychology of runners. Uh, but he was so busy coaching and doing research for many years that he never got around to publishing some of his stuff. So we published that before him, and then he did it in his books. And I think he's had four editions of his wonderful books since then. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think those pacing tables or tables like that are universal now. I think everybody trains, you know, 98% the same uh, with with tables and 80-20 philosophy and this and that. And uh, some people spend an inordinate amount of time talking about Coach X and Coach Y and Theory Z and Theory ABC, um, but they all end up being very small modifications mm -hmm. on the basic theorem. Uh, it's like Einstein. Uh, it, it holds true pretty, pretty much, and so uh, it's what people use. The real trick is figuring out which of your athletes don't adapt too well to the conventional framework and how you tweak it for the individual athlete. Uh, that's, a, that's a real art of coaching. Uh, one of the things that uh, I read up on as well is love to get your take on uh, your approach to nutrition um, as you get through this. It, it was mentioned that you've been a vegetarian long time uh, and you got into it not necessarily because uh, it was um, helping your running. It was just something that you ethically, morally thought was the right choice. I was just curious to kind of build on that as far as how you approach the best way to fuel your body to be ready to, to compete in some of these races or to even I mean, compete. Let's use that in a very generic term. Sure. I, I've always been very, very interested in all the scientific sides of running. And that included training and nutrition and, and all the great science we have now. Nutritionally, you're, you're right. I became a vegetarian in the image of John J. Kelly, who was an ovo-lacto vegetarian. I always said it was ethical, but I was never on a high horse trying to preach to anyone to follow my beliefs or any particular beliefs. I was flailing around in the dark because there weren't many vegetarians in the 60s, and I wanted to be one thing, but the thing I wanted even more than that was to run fast. And so if, uh, if ethics got in the way of my running fast, I would have ditched the ethics real quickly and <laughs> gone for an all-steak diet or something like that. Uh, I think I made nutritional mistakes in my marathon career. I think I was a little bit weight-obsessed. Uh, I think I had marathons when I didn't run as well as I could have because maybe I didn't get enough glycogen in my uh, body for three or four or more days before the marathon. Uh, I had this obsessive uh, 
feeling that I still find hard to shake that the uh, skinniest runner wins the race. And uh, I know that's not true, although it's largely true. <laughs> uh, it's mostly true. Uh, I know for sure it's not the fattest runner who wins the race. And somewhere in between, we all have to find the, the line that works for us. And uh, I, I've played around with that a lot through the years. Uh, and uh, now I'm at the point, finally I've reached the point, it seems, where uh, I don't have to worry too much about weight because it's hard for me to keep the pounds on at this point. Uh, they just uh, don't want to stay with me. So uh, it's a struggle to maintain strength and weight now rather than trying to lose a pound or two and thinking that that'll make me run faster. So uh, for, for your nutrition, if we look at, I, I'm very interested in nutrition and I, I, I know uh, we don't really want to tell people what they should and shouldn't eat, but at the same time, there are some truths with nutrition and what people should and shouldn't eat. So if we, if we take just kind of generally uh, the American diet across the board, what do you, what, if you could wave a magic wand, what would you wish uh, people would eat a lot less of, and what do you wish people would eat a lot more of? Sure. Uh, and though, you know, my answers are not any different than anyone else's. Uh, I would uh, whisk away uh, fried food, French fries, uh, chicken, whatever it is that people eat. I don't eat that stuff. I, don't, uh, I think pizza is a disgusting food, and I know it's everybody's favorite, but that's not uh, anything in its, uh, its favor. Of course, the heavily sugar-laden Drinks of all kind, uh, especially including the colas. Uh, uh, unless unless you're running 20 miles a, a day, you don't need any sugar in your drinks. You can do fine with water, and it's it's tough to beat. Uh, of course, I'd love to see people eating more whole foods, less processed food. I still, you know, I have a terrible sweet tooth, and I find it very very hard to. Uh, pass by something at the convenience store that's wrapped in wrapping paper and has a bright yellow label and a lot of sugar in it. But um, I try my best not to, to do a lot of that. Uh, whole foods, uh, vegetables, fruits, beans. Uh, I think uh, people are are getting way too little fiber in their diet. Uh, I like the uh, the probiotic foods. I like yogurts and kefirs and kombucha and uh, kimchi. I met kimchi first at the Seoul Olympics in 1988, and I've been doing a very light, a light dance around it ever since because it's not uh, primary Western taste, I wouldn't say. Um, but, you know, uh, I think whole food is, is, is the secret. You know, if we eat whole foods, we're probably going to be healthy and probably do well and especially probably get the fibers that we're, many of us are sadly lacking. I didn't hear uh, beer second time today in that list, by the way. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm constantly trying to limit my alcohol intake. Not that I'm an alcoholic or need to limit it, but I, I'm at the, uh, you know, I, I'm 75. You know, I get tired. I, I, I feel like I don't need anything that's a, a depressive in my life. But uh, damn, I had a couple of pumpkin ales the other night uh, for the first time in a month or so, and they were really good. And, and my wife likes to sip red wine. She's very good at sipping. I'm more of a glutton. So I have to be careful of what I start to make sure that I'll stop. 
Uh, so I, you know, uh, I, I like alcohol, but I am, I am trying to cut it back in my diet, in my consumption patterns. So uh, after those pumpkin ales, was there a nap after that? Because yeah. for me, there would have been a nap. <laughs> That's exactly the problem that I'm trying to, to, to fight. Because yes, there's a nap or I'm falling asleep in front of the TV at 7.30, which isn't that great a feeling. And uh, I'd rather... You know, I'd rather be awake and alert, and alcohol doesn't seem to uh, assist in those categories. It does not. <laughs> uh, I've been noticing, uh, especially a, a, an afternoon beer pretty much guarantees a pre-dinner nap. Yeah, well, I, I don't have a beer in the afternoon, but I have a uh, afternoon nap. <laughs> that's, that, that's one of the nice parts about being retired and being able to let yourself go for 30 minutes sometime in the afternoon. Well, that's just good rejuvenation. Just, you know, it sure refresh is. the body. <laughs> Some science. Yeah, there's science. More naps, less alcohol. <laughs> so you brought up a, a technical point I kind of want to touch on just a moment. You, you mentioned about building up those glycogen levels in the days leading up to a marathon. So I have the uh, Portland coming up in a week and a half. And so that next week would kind of start that day. So what, what might be some of the things that I can do to start, you know, getting those levels at their top peak? You know, when I when we first learned about the uh, carbohydrate glycogen loading back in the late 60s, uh, it was believed or somebody talked us into the fact that we, we had to completely deplete for four days uh, of the final week. And then the last three days we could turn on the pasta and bread and all the carbs. And everybody went through this depletion phase, which these days would be called four days of keto mm -hmm. or something like that. And it just left you feeling so lethargic and out of sorts. And uh, you know how the last week before a marathon, you're pretty much convinced you can't run two miles, never mind 26. And then you go on this low-carb diet, and you're not sure you can even do one mile, never mind 26. It just messed you up so bad. And then the carbs brought it around. These days, I think it makes more sense just to taper your training, uh, eat good carbs all the way through the week, and, and maybe uh, get a few more on the day or two before the race, but not to overdo it. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I don't like overdoing it. It just doesn't feel right to me. And uh, too many runners have too many uh, gastrointestinal problems during races with foods and drinks and gels and all of that. And uh, I think it's a place where moderation is a good thing. And then uh, maybe having a pretty well-practiced fluid and gel routine for the race itself. So you're getting something back every 30 minutes or so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's been my my practice over the last several weeks is every three miles. That's when I do a, do a short walk, simulate the walk through the the water station. We have a uh, recipe. I, where did you get that recipe? Was that a runner's world? Uh, it, so, so yeah, so the recipe is, uh, it's a... Uh, a recipe I got off runner's world and then we tweaked it and we think improved on it. We call them crazy balls. Uh, it's basically oatmeal, honey, nut butter, uh, some dried fruits in there kind of rolled all, all up in one. And those, we use those instead of the gels because the gels Do get you. a little bit too sweet yeah, for me. Exactly. Yeah. That, that's pretty great. That, 
what you just described is what I eat pretty much every day of my life. <laughs> but you know, Nicholas, you're way smarter than I am. I have done very, very few gels or anything my entire life in a marathon. And I've run marathons without taking a sip of water or aid or anything the entire race. And I actually just the other day ordered a package of some, a box of some gel or another. And these last 10 days, I think I'm going to practice uh, running with the gels and uh, maybe do a better job of that in my Boston Marathon this year than I have in the past. And and if it doesn't go well, I'm blaming you. <laughs> uh, I will help you blame Nicholas okay, any, uh, good. for anything whatsoever. Yeah, well, uh, I'm any just... Health, financial problems, whatever we can blame Oh, yes. Nicholas. Well, I, I'm yeah, not anything. sure you can blame me if you preface that whole thing by saying I'm smarter than you are. I'm, I'm just latching onto that part right there. The rest of it was just peanuts teachers. <laughs> well, then, I'm going to have to live question... with that for years. So that my question is, do you, uh, do you pick up your pace the last six miles? Um, we will find out. <laughs> we'll, we'll find out. Uh, so I would my, in my training, I deliberately stayed really in the zone. So it, it, when I was feeling like I had a little extra, I forced myself just, you know, today's run is 20 miles in zone two so that you feel great. Don't, don't crush it right now. That's, that's for the race day. So, um, you know, if I beat my PR and uh, move through and get ahead of where I was, uh, then this will definitely be a success. And I'll happy to let you know how that worked out for me. If I don't, well, we'll just do it again. <laughs> I, I'm very glad to hear you're not trying to crush it on the training runs. I think that's a mistake that some runners make uh, because of lack of confidence. You know, unless they do it in training, they don't think they can do it in a race. Mm -hmm. And what turns out is the opposite. Because they do it in training, they leave it in the, on the course, and then it's not there on race day. So uh, you're back to being the world's smartest runner. Well, I was the opposite uh, before. My two other marathons, the uh, second one in particular, <laughs> that was the approach I took, which is if I'm not setting a PR on my training, then what am I doing on race day? And uh -huh. uh, I'll tell you what I got done on race day. That was very little. I got crushed. <laughs> So, Ambie, going forward in life, if I had a dollar for every time Nicholas is going to say, Ambie Burfitt said I was the smartest runner, <laughs> I will be a multimillionaire. And you have made, possibly, because Nicholas and I are cousins, the rest of my life a uh, living hell. That's right. Well, <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry about that, but I would say that about anyone who's uh, training sensibly and even practicing with his gels on his training runs so that he's keeping on a nice uh, homeostasis with his glucose. Well, I appreciate that. Okay. Well, well, I'm going to call him a semi-smart running guy and we'll, we'll leave it there. Well, I'm just going <laughs> to, I've got to check his results now. When's the race this weekend? Uh, the third. So it's the week, it's the third. Okay. Okay. day before marathon or, uh, Boston. Yeah. Oh. Uh, got yeah, it. I'll email you the results. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> so I'm I'm looking. Our our ultimate goal when we first uh, signed up for the Portland Marathon this year, we both wanted to break four hours. Um, I've mm -hmm. had to scale that back. I had an interruption of my training that I with a the knee problem, and uh, I could very well do it. I think it's still achievable, but I'm focusing more on just setting my best time. That's uh, that's going to be the big success for me, and then having three under my belt. That'll do it. 
Sounds like a really smart plan, Nicholas. <laughs> I hope you stick to it when the gun goes off. Ooh, oh yeah, I'm actually <laughs> better at that than funny. I'm almost kind of glad he's not here because he that I would say that that's his Achilles' seal is uh, that excitement uh-huh. and that burst and taking off like a bat out of hell. Yeah, it's hard. I know exactly. It is hard because you, uh, you just you just feel so good when you're taking off and everybody's taking off and there's all the excitement. You just feel everything's so great, yeah. and then it's no. not. And it's not. <laughs> Two hours later. Yeah. Well, you know, we'll, we'll have to have you back and we can regale each other with our uh, marathon stories. And um, you can let me know exactly how slow I ran because I'm pretty sure you'll finish Boston faster than I'll finish Portland. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I, we'll I could be anywhere from 4.15 to 4.30, depending on a lot of things, uh, especially weather, of course. But I'm definitely going to try the gels, and if I if I have a good race, I'll be sure to give you credit for it. All right. Well, I will take that all day long. <laughs> he will take that all day long. Uh, Ambie, it's been great having you on the podcast. Uh, can't thank you enough for all the information that you've given to us. We would love for you to uh, wrap this up with one little tidbit that you could share with our listeners. Well, uh, I'm a 75-year-old marathoner, and uh, some days I feel crazy that I'm still out here, but uh, most days I feel incredibly sane that I'm still out here. Uh, I'm trying to run smart. I think running smart is always the key to running, and that means that when you're young and fast, you go for personal records. When you're in middle age, you adapt to changes in your life and family and stay fit enough uh, to do what you can. And when you reach retirement like me, the doors are flung wide open again and you can kind of do whatever you want to. And so uh, there's a continual world of opportunity and adventure out there and running. And I think the smart thing to do, the way to keep yourself motivated is to keep looking for those adventures and to keep tackling them in a uh, consistent basis. Well, that is fantastic advice. Uh, I love that you took that to heart this year and joined the Hood to Coast, and I can't wait to see you back up there again next year. Thanks. I may be back. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a question mark. There are other adventures next year. Very true. (laughs) I just want you to know that Ambie was just being polite by calling you uh, a smart runner. Oh, he is a, a very polite human being. Hold on a second. He he didn't say I was a smart runner. He said <laughs> I was a smarter runner than he was. Let's make sure we we frame well, that correctly. Yeah, but he's a pretty fucking smart dude. I know. I know. I know but, so, he's but I also me, think he's a, a polite liar. About that. I I think he <laughs> You know, I think he just appreciates somebody that knows restraint. You know, he was just he was just talking that in. Um, but it is interesting to think about if I'd had that conversation with, uh, you know, Ambie from 30 years ago, how he might have approached that response with, well, did you, did you get a kick and what'd you do with it? Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure 30 years ago he would have been like, oh, that was a wasted opportunity. Exactly. Uh, so we are so fortunate because we're at a point in the evolution of running where at age 50, we have Ambie in front of us 25 years later. And 
you know, he has Hal in front of him at 90, but we are so lucky as time goes on. Like Hal, he didn't have anybody in front of him. Right. You know, and we are so lucky to be living in this age where we have a plethora of 70 year olds just crushing it that tells us that we are going to be just fine as we go into our 70s and 80s and we'll be able to keep doing what we want to do. And somebody that's seen the evolution of the sport in so many ways, and yet how it stayed very, very similar. I was really kind of half expecting that, you know, the bite he would take on um, coaching and training would be way more, yeah, things are way different now than they used to be. And, you know, it, it's, <laughs> He's like, you run. You know, yeah, the fundamentals are the same. Uh, your ability to measure the metrics are a lot more fine-tuned and the equipment sure. is different. Um, but you know, what you need to do to effectively get out there and be a healthy runner and, you know, that's the same thing. Get out there and run. And, uh, it's distance and time. Exactly. (laughs) It's it's two things, distance and time. You can mix it up however you want. Uh, but those are the two metrics you got to work with. Right. Yep. How far are you going to, or not even how far it's more duration and effort than anything else. I mean, that's, that's what the body understands. Everything else is just what we measure it by at the end of the day so that we can have these neat little graphs and spreadsheets. Exactly. What I mean by time and the distance and times like, Hey, I'm going to run 10 miles. I'm going to run a a little bit fast for me, or am I going to run a little bit slow for me? Right. Right. Those, Those are your time metrics as you're training. Right. And you know, and as, uh, as he said is, you know, I can run 60 minutes, I can run 90 minutes, run 120. And you know, that's just going to be a different length each time. And it's great to hear from a range of people who have all been able to embrace that change. You know, Ambie is another example of somebody who's like, you know, the time to set PRs is in your twenties. And if you're not in your twenties, then <laughs> <laughs> not well i mean i guess it's very you know if it's your first race you're setting a pr for the first time and that's great whenever that comes uh but it's going to be an effort that gets harder and harder as you get older and older no matter when you set it and how far uh that distance is and the realism of wanting to be able to continue to get out there is about resetting those expectations so that you're not just beating yourself up and we are so fortunate that the running community is so giving. I mean, we, we just interviewed a Boston Marathon winner. Yes. When did you think that would ever happen? Uh, well, you know, I wasn't quite sure, um, other than we had already interviewed a Boston Marathon winner. That's true. That's true. Um, but it's just every time I'm so surprised as we sit down with these people that are so famous in the running world and they're just happy to give us their time and talk about the sport that we all love. Yeah, exactly. And the idea that we could get out there and run alongside them is also um, really, really amazing. We literally did in some regards. Well, not for very long. Not, well, <laughs> I don't know. It'd be, I kind of wish I had an opportunity to run with Ambie. I mean, he threw out a marathon time that's right in our zone. I mean that. Well, yeah, he's 25 years older than us. Well, that's okay. I don't care. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> I'm not going to be like, look at me, 10 feet ahead of that 75 year old. Elbow, push him out of the way. Exactly. Sprint across the line at the last second and then fall over. Yeah, no, no. I mean, just, you know, knowing that uh, you can get out there, you can run among some of the most amazing people. You just have to put your name on the line, sign up, get out, get in that race. 
And so again, big thanks to Ambi and uh, everybody should check him out. He is a wonderful, wonderful person. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of Old Crazy Runners. Take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and tell all your friends how much you love listening in. And be sure to go by Strava and join the Old Crazy Runners Podcast Run Club because that's where all us old crazies hang out and that's where we encourage each other to keep getting out there, keep putting in the miles, and keep being old crazy runners.